The title of my message is called Break Up Your Fallow Ground. Break Up Your Fallow Ground. And if you have a Bible, um, today I'm going to just be looking at just one verse in Jeremiah chapter 4. It's Jeremiah 4 and verse 3, and here's what it says. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. So as I, was, as I was reading this chapter and as I was praying about, okay, you know, where can I find some message that is relevant and applicable to our experience today? I was thinking back to the story of Jeremiah. We kind of know how Jeremiah ends. Basically, the book of Jeremiah ends with the Babylonians coming and taking Judah captive. And then, you know, we, we have the whole, that chapter or that era outlined in the book of Daniel. And um, so we kind of know that Jeremiah's messages kind of, they fall on deaf ears. And as I thought about that, I was thinking, okay, so what's God's, if God knew the future, he knew what was going to happen, what would have what would his plan be? What would he be trying to do through Jeremiah? And I realized that his, his ultimate goal was to really bring them to the place where they would learn to turn back to him to repent. So I think I mentioned this last week, but the book of Jeremiah is a very strong appeal. It's a lot about repentance, a lot. But hidden inside of the book are pockets of very practical and very down-to-earth messages of, hey, this is what it takes to come back to me. And so I've, I've looked for that, and uh, that's what I want to focus on with you today. Now, Jeremiah 4.3 uses an analogy. It basically compares the, the men of Judah and Jerusalem, it compares their hearts to a field. Now, let me see if I can um, make this more simple to understand, but it's springtime now, and everywhere we drive, we see evidences of life coming back. And it depends, of course, where you live as you watch this, but where we live, and, and in this Westchester area, there are pockets of places that have big fields and when you look at the fields, they're green now. You see the daffodils uh, that kind of poke up and you see some clover. And, you know, we see evidences of nature coming back to life again. And it may be that you may actually live near something. Like my wife and I, we go to a park and there are parts of the park that are fenced off. And they're not fenced off because people, you know, do things in them. They are fenced off because I guess the township uh, wanted to keep those places like wild for wildlife, like birds and, and, you know, rabbits and such. And so some of these places just grown over with all kinds of diversity of weeds and all these other things that just grow up there. And this is the imagery that God is using to try to convey the idea of what has happened to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, when I talk about <clears throat> the fallow field, I want you to know that that directly translates to our minds. Because when we talk about the heart, 
in the Bible, we're really talking about the mind. I think we all understand that, right? And why can a field be compared to a person's mind? Why? Because a field, you can like cultivate it and grow things in it, or you can just leave it alone and things will still grow. It'll just be like out of control. And your mind is the same way. If you are deliberate about what you put into your mind, then you can grow a disciplined, structured, healthy mind. But if you just, you know, watch anything and everything and listen to anything and everything and basically just allow anything goes, then eventually your mind will be overcrowded with things that could produce a not so desirable harvest. So that's why a person's mind can be compared to a field. I hope that makes sense. Okay, so with that in mind, I want to remind you that Jesus used the same analogy. If you remember in Matthew 13, Jesus talked about a man that was sowing and some fell on good ground, some fell on stony ground, some fell by the wayside, and then some fell, fell among the thorns. So this language that Jeremiah uses is definitely a common illustration in the Bible. Now, what is a fallow field? What does it mean to break up your fallow ground? Well, my understanding is that when something is fallow, it may have been plowed at one time, it may have been cultivated at one time, but through neglect and disuse, um, things start to come in, unwanted things. And I remember um, when I was in school, I had to do like a gardening class. I know that sounds strange, but the school that I went to, they had this gardening requirement. And then later on, when I taught in um, Adventist academies, we also had a gardening segment. And if you've ever grown like lettuce, corn, tomatoes or something, one of the things that will strike you as being odd is that the plants that we really like their will to live is very like it's weak like with a little bit of of you know injury they're dead you know <laughs> whereas weeds it's amazing like weeds isn't it too bad that like good plants don't act like weeds like they just grow everywhere and they're sturdy and they're stable and you know if you forget to water them they'll still grow but for some reason it doesn't work like that the good things that you want, they require a lot of work, whereas weeds, they just kind of grow. And see, if you don't do anything, my parents once owned, well, several times they've owned farms. And one thing that I observed is like, if they didn't, if they, in one year, if they didn't put a cover crop in, what would happen is it would get grown over with weeds. And those weeds would get so big that the seeds, they would go to seed. And then in the second year, the weeds, uh, would be so thick because not only did you have new weeds, but you had the old network of roots that, that really covered the whole ground. And so this is kind of what happens to a field if you don't cultivate it. That's what it means to be fallow. You have generations of weeds and other plants. Pretty soon, if you don't look carefully, you know, you could have a squirrel that dropped an acorn and you have little oak trees and little, just kind of all kinds of craziness going on. Well, guess what? That is in some way uh, the experience of a person's heart. And I want to talk with you about what God uh, is trying to tell us through Jeremiah 4, verse 3. First of all, 
if you don't do anything, in other words, if you don't make a diligent effort, your mind, your heart will become fallow. Years ago, I used to sell books door-to-door, -door, Christian books. And if you've ever had like a door-to-door -door salesman come to your house and knock on the door, and like you were so irritated, that was me, okay? <laughs> that was me before. And um, I would go like door-to-door, -door, and I, man, I, I probably canvassed um, all over the U.S. Like I have been in uh, the New England area. I've been in the South. I've been in the, you know, I've been... Uh, on the East Coast, I've, I don't know if I've done any on the West Coast, but anyway, I've been all over. And one time when I was in Louisiana, um, I was walking between homes, selling books, I had a bag. And as I was walking, there was a little tract on the ground. It was black and it had yellow letters. And this is what it said. It said, what to do to be lost. And I thought, I wonder what you have to do to be lost. And I thought, I want to know what you have to do to be lost. So not that I want to be lost, but I just wanted to know what you had to do to be lost. So I picked it up and I opened it. You know what it said? It was blank. It was just a white, it was just completely, there was nothing, there was no print inside. I thought, was this like a, you know, like a mistake? And then I turned it over and this is what it said. It said, that's right. You don't have to do anything to be lost. And then, in Hebrew, and then it quoted Hebrews 2.3. This is what Hebrews 2.3 says. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? What do you have to do to be lost? You just have to neglect the offer of salvation that Jesus provides. Do you realize that if you don't do anything, if you don't accept Jesus by faith, if you don't accept the offer or the invitation of mercy that he provides, then that offer of salvation, it just disappears. And friends, I want you to know that neglect does so much damage to us spiritually. If you're not proactive, about cultivating the heart, which, you know, I'm talking about the mind. And of course, when I talk about the heart, I'm talking about the mind from the spiritual standpoint. If you're not proactive about planting good seeds, then eventually your heart gets overgrown with weeds and thorns. And I want to be very practical here. What cultivates or what causes... Um, how do we plant good things in our mind? Well, in the spiritual realm, there's really not that many, many things. I think many of you know, but Bible study, devotion, having devotions. These are the things that implant good things into our minds. Listening to a sermon, whether it be online or on Facebook, on YouTube, um, watching this Zoom um, worship service, this implants good seeds in your mind. And you know, if you have a garden, from time to time, you'll get weeds that pop up. And what do you have to do to the weeds? You have to pull it out, right? And that's the same. Sometimes we have thoughts of, you know, malicious thoughts or, or impure thoughts. We have to, we have to deliberate, be, be deliberate about asking God to help us not think about those things, right? So in a small way, this is what the culture of the mind looks like. This is what it means to... Um, to break up your fallow ground. Now, let, let, me, let me be a little bit more direct because when the Bible talks about breaking up your fallow ground, 
This is the idea of, if we compare the weeds, the thorns, to sinful things, to break up the fallow ground simply means to repent and to turn away from those things which preoccupy our minds and crowd out the good seeds that God wants us to grow in our minds. Okay, does that make sense? So let me say that one more time. When Jeremiah 4.3 says, break up your fallow ground, the ground is fallow because it's neglected and in the place of good things, bad things grow. And so what God is saying to the people and to us today, when he says, break up your fallow ground, what he's saying is, by my power, remove and, and choose not to be thinking or to be putting into your mind those things which are sinful, but instead plant and, and put things in your mind that will, that will sow a, a crop that will bring forth righteousness. And so when the Bible talks about repentance and when it talks about you know, turning away from sin, this is the epitome of what it means to break up your fallow ground. But I know that many of you sometimes face this dilemma. We sin because we like to sin. It's just human nature. And so what can we do to cooperate with God um, in order that we might experience true repentance? Well, something you have to know is that repentance is not something we do of ourselves. It is a gift from God. And I'm going to read that for you. Um, in 2 Timothy 2.25, the Bible says, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. In other words, Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy and simply telling him that God is the one who gives us repentance. Okay, so having said that, um, where do we find this gift? Well, it comes from a number of different places, and I'm not going to exhaust all of them, but I'm going to read to you what Jesus said. Jesus said, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. Now, Jesus is simply saying that the Ninevites repented because Jonah preached to them. And, you know, if you listen to a sermon, uh, if you listen to a, a message and you hear God's voice speaking to you. It's not me. It's not the person speaking. But God speaks through the Holy Spirit to people's hearts when the word of God is broken, you know, when people share the word of God. And so sometimes you could be listening to a sermon and the spirit of God says to you, hey, you need to turn away from the sin. You need to break up that fallow ground. And so that's one way that the Holy Spirit can help us to experience the gift of repentance. That's not the only way. Uh, we can repent as the result of seeing God do amazing things. This is Matthew eleven twenty one. 21. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus is saying, hey, if I did all of these same miracles to those people of Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented. And see, when we see God work miracles in our lives, it awakens gratefulness in our hearts. And that gratefulness is a source of repentance because when you know that, hey, I'm sinful and I'm, I'm, I'm wicked, but God is still showing and showering his love upon me, that really breaks people's hearts. And that's another way that you can experience the gift of repentance. Um, repentance is also in response to the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And in John 16, verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit is to help us know what sin is in our lives. And so, friends, when we spend time in prayer, when we spend time in Bible study, when we spend time with, um, in Christian fellowship, this is, these are opportunities when the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and it will whisper to us in a way that we recognize about things in our life that might be causing the ground, to be the ground of our hearts to be fallow. And when God gives us the gift of repentance, something changes within us. And this is the experience that God was desiring for the men of Judah and Jerusalem, but it's also the experience that he desires for us today. Now, the second part of the verse says, so not among thorns. Now, I know that most of us, if we saw a field and it was covered in weeds and, and you know, little trees and, and you know, all, all the noxious weeds that you can think of, I don't think any of us would start, you know, trying to plant squash or cucumbers or, you know, tomatoes or corn or whatever. We, I don't think we would do that. But in the spiritual realm, um, people do do that, okay? And let me explain. If I was to take this analogy that Jeremiah uses and then take it to the New Testament, Jesus has two places in the Gospels where he talks about a man sowing good seed, but it falls among thorns. And it's interesting because Jesus actually says what those thorns represent. So in Luke 8, verse 14, this is what Jesus said. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Now, if you go to Mark 4, verse 18, this is what Jesus said. All these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, verse 19, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Okay, so what I've done is I've distilled from Jesus' words the things that he calls the thorns, okay? And so here's the list. It's the cares of this life, riches, pleasures of this life, and lusts of other things. And I want to deal with each of those um, with you today. So when you have your mind and it lays fallow, meaning it's not, you haven't made any effort to cultivate good seed in it. And so all of these, you know, thoughts of hatred and bitterness and, and you know, desires for, for unlawful gain and, and, you know, just all these kinds of things come into your mind. Even if you listen to a sermon, even if you read the Bible, even if you pray, those seeds will eventually disappear. And I'll bet, because I've been like this before, but, you know, I... My first year of college was a disaster, really, from a, from a standpoint spiritually, because I was doing so many crazy rebellious things, but at the same time, I was required by this, you know, Adventist school, I was required to sit in chapel and to attend Bible class. 
And I remember in my mind, it was the furthest thing from my heart because I was, I was just chafing to get out of there, you know? But what's interesting is that many people still have thorns in their mind. Like, let me give you an example, the cares of this world. You know, it's normal that we have some level of concern about, you know, hey, where am I going to make money to buy food, to pay the rent, you know, and all of that, right? That's, that's some level of that is normal. But there are some people, this preoccupies their minds. They worry. Maybe that's your personality type. I mean, I don't know if this is, if they even do this anymore, because I know they have totally new personality tests and such. But, you know, I think my parents told me that my personality type is like, you know, type A, where, you know, you're always like, you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're driven and, and you're always worried and anxious. And that is my personality type. I am kind of naturally that way. But the problem is that if you're a Christian, God doesn't want you to be worried about tomorrow. And, you know, he's given us so many statements in the scriptures. Like Jesus actually said, you know, if I clothe the flowers of the field and I feed the birds of the air, aren't you worth more than a flower? Aren't you worth more than those birds? And, you know, these, these flowers are more beautiful than anything that Solomon ever wore. So why would you be worried? You know, yesterday as I was reviewing my message, that really struck me. Like, I admit to you that I worry. I worry about my kids. I worry about my job. I worry about where I'm going to be in five years, even though I shouldn't, right? But, and, you know, I'm saying this to you on, on this conference, but re the reality is that God loves you so much. He cares more about you than you care about your own children. And if you don't have children, don't worry. He cares more about you than your parents care about you. Like, do you get the idea? In other words, he loves you so much and wants so much good for you and all of your worrying, all it does is it crowds out the seeds of truth and of appreciation and of thankfulness that God wants to sow in the, mind, in the field of your heart. So that's one kind of person. The thorns are just anxiety and cares and stress. Look, that can totally ruin your Christian life. Something else that can destroy your Christian life is the deceitfulness of riches. Now, this may surprise you, but when I first entered college, I entered as a business major. And, you know, I don't want to say that my parents predestined my life for me, but I mean, you know, my sister was supposed to be a doctor, I was supposed to be a lawyer, and I was going to do, you know, business law, something like that. And eventually, you know, I felt or I heard the, the call to ministry and I left that all behind. But there are times when I have, I have succumbed, you could say, to this desire for um, just accumulating wealth. And I remember even after um, I started working in ministry, I formed a business with two of my, my good friends. And, you know, we made some money. But, you know, and it's not wrong to make money. I want to be very clear. Um, but 
I think there's a balance. If that is preoccupying your mind, that is the place, that is the point where this becomes something that crowds and chokes out the fruitfulness that you could have in your mind with God's word. You see, it's the priorities because some people are only a seventh day Adventist. In other words, they're only an Adventist on the seventh day. But God wants you to be an Adventist every day. He wants you to be a Christian every day. And really, in, in the priority of Christian things, yes, you should work with all of your might. But God wants you to keep his glory and his, his kingdom centermost in your mind. Okay? And so when something preoccupies that or, or overtakes that, usurps that, that's when this becomes a thorn in your life. Um, pleasures. You know, some people are just bent on living an adrenaline-fueled life. And, you know, maybe adrenaline is the wrong word, but, you know, they're just chasing one high to another. All they want, what they're looking for is simply, you know, one pleasurable experience for another. And, you know, we've had friends like that. They just live for cruise to cruise. I mean, literally, that's all they do. You know, they're on a cruise, and then a few months later, they're on another cruise. And, and I'm not saying cruises are bad, although from an uh, epidemiological standpoint, they're not so great. But anyway, the point is that cruise or vacation is not so bad. It's not, that's not the bad thing. It's when this becomes the goal of your life. You know, it's about priorities. God wants us to have pleasure. He wants us to have meaningful recreation. But what's the priority? What's the what, what takes precedence in your heart, okay? And then Jesus talks about the lusts of other things, okay? So I'm going to read something from a book called Christ's Object Lessons. These are not necessarily things sinful in themselves, but something that is made first instead of the kingdom of God. Whatever attracts the mind from God, whatever draws the affections away from Christ is an enemy to the soul. Do you know, you could love your boyfriend or girlfriend or, or something so much that that person becomes an idol to you. You could love your computer so much that that thing becomes an idol. You could love your phone so much or your job so much. What am I saying? I'm saying there are things that are not bad, but because we place, place such a, a, a great emphasis on them that that thing becomes a thorn. It crowds and it chokes out the truth that God wants to sow into our hearts. You know, I want you to think about your own heart today because if you don't think about it, if you just neglect it, um, it will become fallow. And what a shame to try to sow among thorns. What a shame to try to put good things when you haven't dealt with the existing things that are there that really make of none effect the good things that you put into your mind. Um, I'm going to ask you today to ask God to break up your fallow ground. It's a gift. Only God can do it. But ask him to break up the fallow ground. Ask him to help you to turn away from the things that distract you from heavenly realities. Ask him to, to break the hold that some of these things have in your life. And ask him to give you uh, a clean heart. Ask him to give you a, a, a newly cultivated field where you can sow truth and reap the harvest of righteousness. 
If that's your desire today, I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this book that, although written thousands of years ago, is surprisingly relevant in our modern day and age. No doubt, as we think about our hearts, maybe some of us can say, yes, I know that I've left my heart fallow, that, that I haven't made any effort to remove the bad things, and it's just overgrown with weeds and thorns. But today, Lord, I have a desire to have a new heart. And so please, break up my fallow ground. This is my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer too, for we ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.